anybody there. Hey, hi, man. I'm so sorry for that. Like, oh no, yeah, worries. I, I, I don't know why I'm apologizing for it. It's just that, like, I couldn't get into the meeting. At oh no, you're then. you're fine. All that right. that was all me. I am usually working on uh, some kind of technical difficulty, but I am uh, so happy to get to talk to you, and also very grateful for your time because I know that it's quite late over there. <laughs> oh, no worries. No worries. I'm very grateful to be on your show. And I'm, yeah, thank you again for inviting me. Yeah, yeah, not a problem. So, do you mind if we get started and if we begin at the beginning of your creative journey? Can you tell me a little bit about what your upbringing was like and how creativity came to be a part of that, just to set the stage on, on where you come from? Sure. So both my parents in the Philippines are writers. My father recently passed away, so oh, but I'll still yeah, that that's fine. But anyway, it was my father who was uh, very active in the literary scene in the Philippines. He was a poet and essayist and occasionally a fiction writer. So we had a lot of books at home. And so it wasn't something that any or either of my parents told me to do or I wasn't pressured into writing it's just that because we were such a literary family there were a lot of books at home and then I saw my dad writing um at his like favorite armchair and sometimes he'd read his poetry to me it's it was something that I gravitated towards naturally mm -hmm. and um, so I was born in the Philippines and uh, we came to the U.S. when I was three years old. My mom was doing her Fulbright, her Ph.D. on a Fulbright grant at the mm. University of Delaware. And my dad brought me to the public library all the time. So he would go to the adult section and read Borges. And then I would go to the kids section and read the Bernstein Bears. <laughs> and... and um, later on, I'd move on to the Narnia Chronicles and to uh, A Wrinkle in Time. So I started out as a reader, and eventually I started writing. I first started writing fiction, if I remember correctly, and then I won some poetry competitions at my elementary school in Delaware. And I think a few essay competitions too. I'm not sure anymore. But <laughs> anyway, and so because of that, I, um, my dad was like really proud of me. And then he was like, you're a poet now. So <laughs> in that sense, like there was some pressure, but it wasn't really pressure. It was more like encouragement that this is something that I could do. And this is something that people actually did. It's hard to be a creative person when you don't know that other people do this thing mm -hmm. that they call poetry or whatever. <laughs> so anyway, I started out as a poet. and Then in college, I was an English major at the University of the Philippines. So after my mom finished her PhD, we went back to the Philippines. And so I'm like, I'm flipping back oh, no, my childhood. Fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, like I, I had so much culture shock because these were my people. And when I was growing up in the States, I felt 
in many ways alienated like i mm-hmm. i wasn't really that conscious of being a person of color but then i'd experience some um like i'd have some experiences of discrimination here and there but i never truly felt like i belonged mm-hmm. and then delaware is like such a white state (laughs) so anyway like i grew up in newark very close to wilmington where yeah joe biden is based but Mm. (laughs) so so anyway like and then most of my friends were people of color too so mexicans and chinese Mm -hmm. like yeah most of my friends were mexican or chinese or like asian american but anyway when we went back i thought that i would belong and then turns out like I stood out like a sore thumb because I, yeah, I, I couldn't understand yeah, what... or speak Tagalog anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I had so, to relearn the language. So just to, to clarify the timeline here, how, how much time did you folks spend in the U.S.? Because it must have been enough that you felt like you were forgetting your, your first language, right? It was five years. and we arrived there when i was three years old and then we left when i was about to turn nine so man those are huge years yeah yeah and those are formative years so i could like remember some bits of tagalog but like these words would hover on my tongue but like (laughs) couldn't quite leap away from my mouth Yeah. yeah so when i came back to the language when I was in the Philippines, I felt like I was returning to something familiar yet foreign to me. Right. If that makes any sense. Oh yeah. And yeah. yeah, And I think that relearning the language, um, informed my own creative process. So I write primarily in English, but I feel somehow that my Filipino-ness and like knowing Tagalog also in weird ways informs my use of the English language, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. You, you yeah. F- you feel like perhaps intuitively you are still thinking in, in your native language, not necessarily, you know, yeah. in, in the way that you that you're formulating thought, but just in the soulness, the soulfulness yes. of something. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can totally empathize with yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, probably is. Yeah. Since even in the U.S., like a lot of writers of color, like have that experience of traversing different languages and different cultures and mm-hmm. inhabiting very different spaces, oftentimes simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I still feel that way. And at the same time, the Philippines is a former u.s colony and we had to learn english in school but we use english the way filipinos do so um if there's such a thing as like indian english or singaporean english there's also filipino english and we were oftentimes told that like there's certain expressions in filipino english that are ungrammatical like they're wrong and Mm. i grew up in the Philippines believing that Filipino English was bad English and it was only it was only when I returned to the States to do my MFA that I realized that even when I was using English the right way I was still using English the way a Filipino would so 
it wasn't necessarily wrong to use English the way I would because I'm a Filipino to begin with, and there are just so many Englishes mm -hmm. that exist in the world, even within what we call American English. Like there, like there's so many like writers of immigrant background these these mm -hmm. days within like who, who like work like who write in america and like publish in america and like yeah. bring their own backgrounds it's into like the language full variants all over the place uh I, yes and so just backtracking just a moment here uh to to get to the point when you decided to come over to continue furthering your education for your writing specifically um you went to texas right like is, is that yes. kind of where yeah i'm very curious of culture shock uh, in particular that time that you spent in in the east coast and and in texas later on in life yeah that is an area that is so powerful to me it's something that i experienced when i was very young myself and to get to hear your perspective on that would be very very exciting to me especially when you entered uh, an academic setting and what that was like in america as as a writer who at that point i mean you're pretty well formed in a lot of ways your yes. your perspective and and kind of how you want to put things down on paper but i'm curious what kind of culture clash there was in those classrooms in those forums to learn mm -hmm. uh if you could elaborate a little bit well maybe we could go back to the moment i landed in austin <laughs> it was like i believed that when i returned to america it wouldn't be that difficult of course i was like scared shitless because <laughs> <laughs> because like i was going to the U.S. to live alone as an adult and attend graduate school. And it was something that I wanted to do. But once it was real, I wasn't sure if I'd survive it. And I believed at first that. So I was like trying to like steal myself. I was like, OK, you lived in the States for five years as, as a kid. It won't be that foreign to you and besides you felt like a foreigner in the philippines anyway people <laughs> thought you were american because of the way you spoke so it'll be fine and then we landed in austin and it was so dry and <laughs> dusty and nothing like the east coast which was so green and lush and then it was like 105 degrees oh. when we got there and then it was so it was so hot it was so different from the america i knew and so there was that and then there was a filipino couple who picked me up and took me in for my first few weeks and they were they were like oh you're like the new immigrant and then we can like well we're gonna take care of you but at the same time like you're still fresh off the boat and then i'm like no mm -hmm. i'm not i grew up here and then like <laughs> they felt i was uppity and yeah so oh, why goodness. am i talking about this but anyway <laughs> um back in 2010 uh the michener center even then was trying to to take in a more diverse cohort mm -hmm. so there was me and there was in my cohort there was one other person who was a person of color and she was a black writer from louisiana mm -hmm. and we were 
practically the two brown faces in the classroom so it was daunting and then a lot of most of my classmates were from the midwest they were white and it could be a struggle like there were microaggressions Mm. and it was tough especially during the first year because like i was miss fresh off the boat and like they didn't know what to make of me like these were people who oftentimes encountered filipino people on tv and the way we're represented on tv is like yeah so like i'd be asked if i was like part of a filipino gang oh my god yeah stupid (laughs) stupid things like that like eventually the guy who asked me that became a friend but so it's water under the bridge but still things were were very different from the way they are now i believe yeah and i do agree with you because when we're talking about 2010 i mean that's 12 years ago and yeah you've seen a lot of cultural change here and that was the just about when i was leaving school and so i remember a litany of microaggressions and all kinds of things like that so for you to be in that space which was i mean it's one of the premier writing places in in this country uh over at the missioner center and to delve a little bit deeper on it just in terms of what you learned there because clearly there were some barriers that made it difficult to be in that space sometimes you said maybe it got a little bit better uh as it went on as you started making more friendships yeah and like also i regret that i didn't deepen my friendship with my black classmate like i think that we recognized early on that things would be harder for us than for our white classmates but it was 2010 so we were like um we're not sure if we should talk about this because if we talk about this then are we going to be whiny and, and should difficult we be to grateful? work with or yeah yeah yes and like are are we gonna like start forming a gang as like, <laughs> one of my classmates suggested <laughs> and apart from that like as a person of color you're made to feel that you should be grateful and it's partly mm-hmm. it's not really something that like the white administrators of this program force you to think but it's cultural too your parents or like your community will make you feel that like oh you got into such a, a prestigious space that we're not even supposed to we're not even supposed to be in and then mm-hmm. you have to be grateful like it's it's very ingrained in society Right. That you must accept the the good with the bad because you're so lucky to be in that position for sure. So do you recall, though, if if there were some things creatively that challenged you in a good way or things that you were able to take away from? uh, Is it two years or three years over there? Three years. Three years. Right. So. Because I I know that also that one of the things about Mishner is that you have various capacities, right? Or people working in different forms, like you have poets, you have fiction. So for you and to have that experience, I'm sure that there must have been something good happening there in terms of creative progress. So what were some takeaways? I know it's a lot to try to (laughs) summarize, but um, if there are some things that you appreciated about that. So... I'm not sure if I had a work ethic when I came into the Michener Center, but 
um, since we had deadlines, I started developing a work ethic. And once you start writing regularly, you just improve as a writer. Mm. So I turned in my the only good story I had written for my application. And then after that, like, I wasn't sure if I could like match, mm. like the level, like stylistically that story. <laughs> and <laughs> so I think that like my first few stories that I wrote weren't very good. And there was one particular story that in Elizabeth McCracken's workshop that was torn apart and <laughs> rightly so because it wasn't a very good story and story-wise it was all right but and I think this is something that a lot of MFA students go through especially their first few months they want to impress their cohort and their mentors mm -hmm. so sometimes they can go overboard in their writing and then like this story was particularly overwritten and I think that because I hadn't like lived in america for so long and i had lived in a country where although english is the medium of instruction like it's not really the lingua franca so mm -hmm. i hadn't truly mastered the language yet so it, mm -hmm. on a sentence level level it wasn't working and yeah that's why it was it didn't do very well at workshop <laughs> but because of that particular workshop like i learned to scale down my prose a little like i thought that like i had to like impress people by like by being thorough by using right? yeah, yeah by like by overwriting and like write writing like similes that apparently didn't make any sense so like i i didn't have the necessarily the, the necessary discipline yet to be adventurous in my language with while still making sense mm, so see. So I scaled back like with my on my um adventurousness in my <laughs> prose. And what happened was that my prose became really dry and really plain. And um Alan Gerganus came in to for like a few weeks to teach some classes. And so he read a portion of a novel that I've since scrapped, but he said that like you're holding back <laughs> with your pros so like i was overcompensating and then he was like just let loose and by i think that by that time because my language had more like discipline mm. or maybe like as a writer i was just better as a writer writer by this time like i i could let loose with my writing while maintaining that discipline right in thought like i because like it used to be that i would write sentences that i thought sounded good but as it turns out didn't make any sense even to me mm. and it's like a delicate balance that you learn as a creative writing student and i i can relate to what a lot of people say when they talk about struggling especially during the first few months of mm an MFA program because like for the longest time they were probably the best writer in their undergrad <laughs> yeah. class or yeah. in their community and then all they're in the company of other very good writers and then they become self-conscious and so it's they a defense start... mechanism yeah, yeah and I think that that happened to me especially with my sloppy story that I wasn't sure 
what I was doing. And I was like really afraid of people criticizing me, which was why like I just mm -hmm. became really scatterbrained yeah. in my writing. <laughs> but I, I think that like it's part of, I think it's a necessary part of our growth as writers like mm -hmm. to go through those struggles yeah so i'm not sure if i answered your question no it's it's perfect yeah. because we're going to that place again that uh, is finding finding the voice and feel for what you want to do even though there are some barriers in front of you um yeah i i remember yeah having those moments where I started as a writer in Spanish, but moving into English when I was very, very young, when I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was very, very small, yes. it felt like translating musicality and, and sort of the freedom that I had in the original language. But obviously, and Spanish is so musical. Yes. Yeah. And, and to bring it into a, a completely new framework of English, it... it I mean, for any language, especially, you know, something like Tagalog and yeah. uh, any other languages, there is that huge chasm that you have to overcome to, to realize, like, putting yourself apart <laughs> and then throwing yes. yourself over the bridge <laughs> or the, the river and then putting yourself back together again. Yeah, I can completely relate to that. Although he was in the New Writers Project, I attended some workshops with Antonio Ruiz Camacho. And you might know him, but he also struggled with that, like take making that leap from Spanish to mm -hmm. English, because um, if I'm correct, he immigrated to the U.S. as an adult. Oh, and that's so, yeah, that's way more complicated. Of yeah, yeah eventually though, he um, he really worked at it during, especially during our MFA. I I saw it, and like he worked really hard on it and then eventually he yeah published barefoot dogs and it's a really good oh, story that's, collection that's incredible and see the, those are the kinds of things that inspire me beyond belief like the work that he did and the work that you have done to bridge that gap because i imagine that you have continued of course your creative education i, I saw that you pursued additional uh training or workshop opportunities in New Zealand. Was that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's correct. So where did you feel like you had eureka moments the most or right at the end of your education? Did you feel like things were clicking for you? I think there were several moments of that. It first happened in Texas when I started writing stories that satisfied me. And um, by that, I mean the, the language in which I was writing made me feel good. Like I felt that this, like this language of the story would expressed like what I truly felt and mm -hmm. what I truly wanted to say, or sometimes even like went beyond my original intentions. Mm -hmm. So there were like several stories in uh, the debut collection that I put out uh, this year that um, achieved that. If I can mention some titles, sure. yeah. Uh, there's Playing with Dolls and Stopover. Those were stories in which I felt that I was 
beginning to be at home in the language and in this thing that I had chosen to do, which was to write fiction. Mm-hmm. And then later on in my PhD, I did what they call a research-based PhD in New Zealand, mm. in which you don't have classes or you, ha- you don't have a comp exam. From the beginning of your PhD, you write your dissertation. And so 70% of my dissertation was a creative project and mm. i i chose chosen this program because there was no coursework so i felt that oh i'll have so much time to do my novel mm-hmm. and to write my novel and so during that time i wrote a novella which was loosely based on my own experiences as an immigrant in new zealand mm-hmm. but i felt really happy about the way i wrote that story it wasn't part of my dissertation at all, but it ended up being part of uh, the story collection that I published this year. And I think that even after the PhD, there were like several eureka moments. So um, I finished a draft of my novel at, um, in my PhD program, but it was a manuscript that, well, although my panel loved it, mm. agents did not love it, especially <laughs> <laughs> uh, the agent I had at the time who uh, initially took me on for my story collection, which he was unable to sell as well. So um, I realized that like, oh, like I have a PhD already and all. And I um, there are people who love this manuscript, but still I can take this manuscript further and there can be a deepening and it's like a novels the novels a different ball game mm-hmm. so i like it because you have a larger canvas for mm. developing characters but at the same time like because you have such a large canvas you can make a mess and <laughs> it goes off the rails <laughs> easily right uh yes yeah <laughs> so um there was there was one particular character in my novel like my novel's about the marcos dictatorship in the philippines and it's about three young people who come of age during the marcos years and of those three characters there was one character who was very undeveloped and i was telling his story through the perspectives of the two other characters because probably because i was too afraid to tell his story Mm. and i think that was the main problem of the novel so eventually uh last year i just took time off to work on that character and i uh, i finished a draft of that novel at the i park residency program in connecticut last year oh cool so yeah thank you and so now i'm currently shopping it around and yeah there have been some full requests but anyway what what, what was i talking about you no that's <laughs> that's wonderful because so, yeah it, it ties in i think that we now find you at this wonderful place where the work is speaking to you. You're not denying where the work has to go. And so yes. that, that also leads me to ask you about love and other rituals, which is your, uh, your story collection, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So at that point, when did you feel like you had a good bulk of stories for a collection or was it just one of those things where you said, 
I'm going to do a short story collection. And then you worked on all of those. How did that one come about? Um, what happened was that I wrote a collection of stories for my MFA thesis. thesis. This, mm-hmm. this was um, just a collection of stories I had worked on for workshops during the MFA and stories which I was like, often well i wasn't forced to write them but (laughs) like because due to the pressure of deadlines i had to come up with an idea for a story and then yeah like slowly the collection started coming together so uh there's one story that uh was part of my mfa application and the bulk of the collection was written written when i was an mfa student and i think that as with a lot of story collections, they're not like the ways in which these books come together isn't intentional, Mm. but because there are themes that we as writers are either obsessed with or just interested in. And these are themes that we work on from one story to another, like they're like common themes and common threads that emerge. Mm -hmm. So, um, I the first story in the collection or the earliest story that was written in uh, set in Delaware and it was me reflecting on my memories of childhood in Delaware although it was it's not really about children it's about two people who fall in love mm-hmm. in Delaware and two like Filipino immigrants and I was at, oh, I, I was also a college yeah I was also a college student and then I was going through these same experiences and feelings but then it was me probably returning to like what i perceived to be a second home for me Mm -hmm. or like a second spiritual home which was delaware and i was like returning to that place creatively so it was probably my way of um if it makes any sense yeah yeah enacting or like enacting my own like nostalgia or like turning my nostalgia into something tangible right and then um when i was doing my mfa like i had to like rack my brains for ideas for stories and what emerged was my own like longing for my home my other home which was the philippines Mm -hmm. and it was also like my reflections on or my like these stories were a means for me to reflect on my emerging like Mm self-awareness as a filipino yeah because when i was like living in the philippines it wasn't like I didn't really, it, it wasn't that I didn't see myself as a Filipino, but it wasn't something that I was like very conscious of. Mm. I was like, it, I was just like living in a certain place. Like I, like I didn't really care where it was <laughs> or I, I did, I did, but. Like you needed a bit of space to understand what had happened. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I, I needed space space or I, I needed some distance away from my homeland to realize how much of a Filipino I actually am <laughs> yeah. and to see it as an actual place. 
right and like to actually miss it so my the stories i were i wrote were my means of like processing that nostalgia and that homesickness although there was like one story in the collection that i wrote as an mfa student that was set in austin texas and was my way of processing uh this like my falling out with a longtime friend mm. who was my um was a friend during my undergrad years in the philippines and then immigrated to the states a few years before i came to the states for my mfa and she visited me in austin and then like what happened next was a huge falling out mm. so that story stop over and well stopover isn't like a direct reflection of what happened but it was like very it's a very very loose loose adaptation uh, it's very of very loosely yeah <laughs> it's, it's a very very loosely um it's very very loosely based on real events right. so very right. very fictionalized yeah so looking back on what home was versus what home is now to you do you feel like the Philippines will always be home. Do you feel like you, you have quieted that feeling that maybe you belonged somewhere else? Yeah, I, I Or if that was ever do the I case. Belong, do I belong somewhere else? Like, I think that there, in some ways, like, I feel like I'm myself more when I'm not in the Philippines. Mm. And I think this is an experience that a lot of people have when they move to different countries as adults, that they can do certain things that they couldn't do in their home countries. Oh, I like, can I imagine, learned, yeah. Yeah, like I learned to tango in New Zealand. And then, <laughs> and then I wrote about, like I sort of wrote about that in Leaving Auckland. Although I, come to think of it now, I wrote Leaving Auckland before I started learning to tango and I had to do a lot of research for the tango scenes in leaving Auckland and like mm. the research lead led me to like actually taking tango classes <laughs> and then when I afterwards like after my PhD like I spent a few months in the states and I was like traveling around and I was like going to tango milongas or like formal dances mm. Uh, um, in every almost every city I visited and then I like I met a lot of people and like a lot of interesting and funny and strange people but I felt that I was like doing like I, I was uh, coming into my own in ways that I I couldn't whenever I was in the Philippines because there are no tango milongas here like it's, <laughs> this is a boring place like it's a cultural <laughs> wasteland but no no I, I shouldn't say that I shouldn't say that like I, like there's a lot of interesting things coming out of the Philippines but yeah yeah no that's wonderful say, that's that's wonderful to hear because yeah you do capture something about just being comfortable in your own skin that you would be able to try anything or willing to try anything that you wanted to because you're not burdened by yes you know am i from here or not you know and i think a lot of us are looking to get to that threshold of of like i just am no matter where i am right yeah and the, well the thing about being in a foreign country is that you're not that afraid of embarrassing yourself mm. 
because <laughs> because like you're like i'm not gonna be here again <laughs> yeah but yeah and then yeah, the other thing is that the people who knew you since you were a kid won't see you anyway so. <laughs> <laughs> that's great i have a couple more questions to be mindful okay. of your time but um i'm curious of what what are some things that you are experiencing right now in terms of the arts or books or music or tv shows whatever it may be that is inspiring you or making you feel like you have uh revived energy to be creative hmm well that's tough especially because of the pandemic mm -hmm. like i haven't been able to get out as much so um oh yeah like uh, i'm not sure if i should tell this story but i i went to a <laughs> classical concert here in the philippines and then there were like there were these kittens that they were unable to remove and i i think they like these kittens were like they're stray kittens like they were mm. underneath the stage so <laughs> It was funny. So, like, so maybe that. Like, I had just, but then it was like the first concert I'd been to since the start of the pandemic. It was like uh, with the it was with the UP University of the Philippines mm. Symphony Orchestra, mm -hmm. and yeah, there were cats that were like, yeah. That's that's the most adorable thing I've heard. Uh, I really really appreciate that because it's a very organic very human moment that only a writer would appreciate you know i'm sure that a lot of yeah. people were like hey you know we want to listen to the music what's going on here but but only somebody like yeah. you like a writer <laughs> it was <laughs> funny because yeah. like the the cats were obviously i'm not sure like if they were consciously doing it but i feel that they wanted to be part of the concert too <laughs> so <laughs> there were like there was a horn section and then in between the horns like so it would be da, 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 and then meow with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was like <laughs> oh i was so sorry i'm just searching for things that i, I haven't been watching tv at all actually i've been really busy just reading and writing because i don't know like especially during the pandemic and um like i um in 2020 i was supposed to go to three residency programs so i had mm. set aside time for that like i i saved up money so that yeah. i wouldn't have to work and then like that didn't happen so i got stuck at home oh, and no. <laughs> like because my yeah because my dad died like i've been Mm -hmm. uh living with my mom so just to keep her company because sure. i'm an only child sure. so anyway like because of that i was like oh like i, I might either die here or <laughs> like the pandemic will end before i know it and then i won't won't have any time to write again so i i like started just like really working really hard writing and reading and so like that hasn't mm. really stopped but then so like I, oh yeah like there's oh oh yeah like a movie yeah. so this popped into my head <laughs> uh like of the few movies i've been i've seen during the pandemic drive my car mm. like one of those movies that like has really stuck with me yeah especially because like i'm a fan of chekhov Yes. And I read Uncle Vanya in my early 20s and I I loved how the movie like 
brought out these themes in Uncle Vanya that I think a lot of people would have overlooked. Mm. Like this yeah. notion of like just having to live with things that you may not necessarily like or like certain heartbreaks that you didn't really bring upon yourself. Like these are things you just have to live with mm. and accept. And it's it's a theme that has resonated with me, especially during this pandemic, because like there are a lot of like horrible things that happen to all of us that we've just had to live with. Mm -hmm. And yeah. like, how do you find meaning from that? Like somehow there's meaning in it, but like you just have to confront the discomforts you have with these like horrible things and yeah mm -hmm. well you have to like live with your grief right right do you feel yeah. um do you feel like being with family during the pandemic and of course you know you had this this massive event happen in, in your life of uh of losing a, a loved one um yeah and and this is i apologize if it may be a crass question but all right do you think that your creativity, your outlet has served you during this difficult time of high stress and, of course, with the loss of a loved one? Definitely. Definitely. So I said that um, my dad died recently, but yeah, he died in 2017, but still it feels really recent yeah. to me, especially because we were close. Mm -hmm. And he was my first writing mentor and he like truly, truly believed in my work. Mm -hmm. So uh, that loss was devastating. And I, um, I was in the middle of, or a few months before finishing my PhD when it happened, like it was mm -hmm. very sudden. So I felt that if I stopped writing then if i allowed myself to be overwhelmed my with my grief mm -hmm. then i would i wouldn't write for years afterwards and it's something that my dad wouldn't want for me so mm. it was horrible but i kept writing and then i wrote some like i wrote an essay that wasn't very good about his wake and funeral and I continued working on my novel and it was it was probably the most horrible thing to go through. But it, it's not that like my grief became light because of my writing, but mm -hmm. it became something that I could live with mm -hmm. and turn into something that would be, how do I say it, a fruitful part of my identity that that yeah that doesn't make sense but like no i, I think it does yeah, yeah it, because you can't remove that grief from you right I, and i think no no having that outlet or at least that avenue for it to to be put into which is i guess the creative part of it or at least just expressing and not and not holding yes. it in yeah would would allow you to do that but it's it's a powerful thing and i'm you know again i'm i'm very sorry for your loss i know that uh a writer recognizes the potential of a writer, especially their yeah. their child, and so I'm sure that you know there's just pure joy from that um, that relationship and the memories that you have. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's like 
precisely my experience with him because yeah i i think that it would have been harder for me to come into my own as a writer if i didn't have a parent who encouraged me and also provided me with that space Mm-hmm. to just be as a writer yeah. like it's yeah. something that a lot of my friends don't have and with and it's something that they struggle with that like their parents just don't get it mm-hmm. but yeah. my dad did <laughs> and also my mom but look especially my dad right but yeah um and i think that like grief became a part of my work in ways that i didn't know it would so during the pandemic and even before the pandemic, I um, wrote essays. And I think for a time, I felt that the only way I could keep writing was to confront my grief directly hmm. in essay form. Like with fiction, you're, I don't know, like you're writing about other people and sometimes you're all writing about yourself, but through other people, but to confront your what's going on within you directly nonfiction might be the better form mm. so i'm, I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that because i did notice that you had a regular output of nonfiction essays and and things like that um but there is a different mindset right that you take on yes. when you're doing nonfiction. and so do you is it one of those like I'm going to remove my fiction cap and I'm going to look at the real world like a realist now and write a, an essay. Is that kind of how it works? <laughs> well, in my case, I just felt that the only way for myself, for me to, for myself to keep writing was just to talk about my grief. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. And it, like, I couldn't write about anything else, especially yeah, or, or I was like, sometimes there were, I was writing about events in my life, but still confronting my grief mm-hmm. by looking at those events. Right, right. So, yeah, I, I couldn't, for a time, I couldn't write fiction. So I could only write nonfiction. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, just one more question here. Um, for people who are just starting out in their creative journey and they, they're doing writing, are there a handful of things that you could pass on to somebody who is at the very start of that creative journey, especially uh, an immigrant child, uh, uh, an immigrant person, or yes. somebody of color who's in this country in the United States or maybe anywhere in the mm-hmm. world that yeah. that is is looking to find confidence in their voice? What would you say to that person? Well writing for me especially when i was living abroad as an immigrant was my means of putting value in myself and recognizing myself and the stories i had and the and my community had as stories worth telling and sometimes like when you're an immigrant or even when you're a filipino living in the philippines and watching Hollywood movies with white um, characters and white actors, you feel that your story isn't worth telling when it is worth telling. And when you recognize that, you realize that you're also recognizing your own worth. 
by allowing your stories to be told. And I'm not sure if that's great advice, but no, I think that's, that's my that's experience. Perfect. Yeah. And I think it's a, a wonderful note to end on too. So I want to thank you, Monica, for your time and for your ability to find the good and find the beautiful things that we have out in the world that are waiting to be seen and putting them down on paper. And of course, for um, this wonderful conversation. So uh, I'll be sure to put in a link to Love and Other Rituals in our episode thank description. You. Yes. So folks can check it out. I know I'm excited to check that out myself too, but hopefully when your next one comes around, feel free to let me know so we can chat again. Cause, uh, oh, thank you. Thank yeah, with, you. With any writer, it feels like we just scratched the surface in a little bit of time. But, I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. This was like, I, I, re, I enjoyed this conversation and thank you for having me. It was very generous of you to invite me on your, your show. Oh, it was my pleasure. But in the meantime, I will be in touch on the internet sometime soon <laughs> with an episode. Thank but, you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks so much again, Monica. And I hope you take care All and right. you have a wonderful evening because it's way late up over there. <laughs> and you have a wonderful day, Jaime. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.